Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on Radio MD, iHeart, or wherever you download us from. Thank you for doing it. This is 1176B. The Bs are always great guests, and we have a wonderful topic today. It's called Building Your Family. And with fertility rates down in the United States, people need to build families or else we're just not going to have enough kids. And kids are fun, and obviously they bring innovation to all of us. We are brought to you as usual, and thank you for downloading us, but go to their websites as well, lifesfirstnaturals.com, the makers of both bovine colostrum and TrueBiotics. Probiotics for digestive and immune health. You can go to their website, lifesfirstnaturals.com, to see the randomized control trials that show their benefit, especially for women. The second sponsor is, of course, Longevity Playbook, our own website. And you can go there and take the actual age test as well as sign up for the free newsletters that give you a brief glimpse into the latest medical news of the week and what it means for your longevity. The book is by Lisa Schumann and Mark Leon Dyres. Mark, how do I pronounce that name? Leon Dyres. You were very close. Leon Dyres. He is a physician. She's a licensed social worker. And they wrote a book called Building Your Family, the Complete Guide to Donor Conception. And let's get right into it. By the way, they have a great cover on the book that looks at baby toys, which I love. And they're actually baby toys from my years. Are they still used, Mark? I don't get to deal with babies very much. I think people go back to old school wooden toys when they have little babies. Yes. And I love them because they were my favorites, if you will. Tell me, what is donor conception? So first of all, thank you so much for having me on. And donor conception is a pathway to parenthood for people who either need donor sperm, perhaps the gentleman has a really low sperm count or is a cancer survivor, or maybe it's a single mom-to-be or a same-sex female couple, and they want to conceive using donor sperm or Maybe it's somebody who needs donated eggs. Either they're a woman with premature ovarian failure, or maybe they're just, their fertility time has passed and they're having difficulties at age 35 to 45 or even later. Or maybe it's a same-sex male couple, or maybe it's a single dad-to-be. So donor conception is anybody who's going to use sperm or egg to achieve a pregnancy and have a baby. And it's all of those. It's all of those. There is a decrease in sperm count going on. And how important is that in the decreased fertility? And then I'm going to get to a a whole bunch of other great topics that are covered in this book. Yeah, well, it is absolutely true that sperm counts are decreasing worldwide. We don't know exactly the reason for that. It may have to do with the basically the very small Y chromosome that's breaking down over generations or 
pesticides and lifestyle choices and and toxins and so on. Most of the people who are choosing donor conception, though, are not those men with low sperm counts because those those parents to be can usually overcome that in the in vitro fertilization laboratory. Most of these situations would be in cases where there's just the absence of a sperm source or the sperm source has had a either a cancer or perhaps medical therapy that basically led to their testes no longer producing sperm. Worldwide, overall conception rates are down in many countries. And I think we're, you're aware of that from, from your show. And you know, if we look at the average age of conception, even in the United States, you know, women are delaying childbearing for lots of different reasons. And the female biological clock is really the number one predictor for success or lack thereof. Let's just concentrate on sperm for a little bit, and then we'll get to eggs. The choice of a donor, how much choice does the couple have of a sperm donor? Oh, the couple chooses who they want to match with for a sperm donor or a sperm source. And that detail should be something that's kind of fully blown out and investigated. A hundred years ago, it was like, let's just find somebody who's handsome, right? The first reported conception from donor sperm was in 1884, right? But nowadays, you know, there's sperm banks that do mental health testing, chromosome testing, testing for recessive genes that cause disease, collect family pedigrees through genetic counselors, and look at the quality of the sperm specimen and present a profile for this donor and present to this donor that they have an ongoing commitment, not only to help the people get pregnant, but also to the child-to-be who very likely may reach out to them someday. And this kind of rubric for donor sperm conception has developed over the past 20 years. It used to be something that's completely anonymous, but it's no longer anonymous because home Genetic testing kits where people are finding their relatives is also a way that somebody who's donor conceived can find somebody who is their genetic parent. Yeah, and to me, that was one of the most interesting things I didn't realize in the book, meaning that you almost always can find now who your father was. And is that still the appropriate term? I always use that. That is the sperm donor is the father and the egg donor is the mother. In my vernacular, that is not the term, because to be a father or a mother is a parenting term. To be the genetic sperm provider means that you gave the male genes for the conception, but you're not actually the father, because to be the father means you're going to raise that child. So in common language, you could use that terminology, but I think that not every family even has a father as part of it, right? So if you take a, a single mom who has a child, you know, her child doesn't have a father, but there was a sperm source or a special person that gave some of the, the special cells required for us to be families. Now, in that basis, since during the in utero period, you're mothering to a degree, and that's one of the questions I want, because you talk about eating habits and vitamins here in a very well, in a very important way. So, it's possible they have two mothers. Is that right? In other words, a mother who is the who carries the baby to term, and then the mother or the person who is 
mothering the child. Right. The egg source, correct. Yeah. Maybe three mothers, right? An egg source, someone who carries it to term, and then someone who takes care of the mothering responsibilities after birth. You know, we are really a very complex combination of genes, gene expression, and environment, right? So we all know that who carries the baby has something to do with the health or well-being of that child-to-be from extreme examples such as drug use or bad healthy, bad lifestyles or, or maybe issues of problems with the mental health of the person-to-be. So, And when a child's born, right? The people who parent from birth to five have a lot to do with who that adult's going to become. So while we do have genes from both the sperm source and the egg source, the expression of those genes is by the environment. So yes, I agree with you. The person carrying the baby affects the genetic expression of the genes that were contributed by the sperm and the egg. And that's a lot of what we have talked about on the program about you change the switches, the epigenes exactly. in, in a strong way. And the book goes into that in a very appropriate way, talking about, for example, the, if you will, the eating well and vitamins and avoiding toxins, as well as the weight. Is there a lot of choosing the mother, that is the person carrying that middle mother, if you will, not the gamete source, but is there often a different person carrying the baby than the female egg source? So in the United States in 2020 was the last year that was reported, there were about 10,000 surrogacy journeys. And in that case there, the embryo was placed in a woman who has previously had her family and and willing to carry a baby for somebody else. And she is carrying that pregnancy to term. And then when that child's born, that child is going to be given to their parents, their mom and dad or their moms or their dads or their mom and dad, however that family is going to settle out. Although they could be given to a third, meaning it could be a, just for example, a male-male pair that has a in vitro fertilization with a, and given to someone different caring for the baby, if you will, carrying the baby into term. Correct. In a male-male couple, the egg source is not the same person as the person carrying the baby, the surrogate. And that way there are, if we're going to use this vernacular, there is the egg source, which could be considered in a common term, a mother. There's the surrogate who's delivering the baby who could be considered the mother. And in this case, there could be a male-female couple that needed a surrogate, and that would be a mom-dad family, but neither the, the mom is not genetically related to the embryo or to the pregnancy, pregnancy itself. But that mom is very, very engaged in those birth to five and birth to 25 development of that child and helping them kind of get to adulthood. And all stages of our lives, and you talk about this in what you do, are affected by our environment. And, you know, raising children is work, and it starts as early in the IVF laboratory, and it goes through pregnancy and through childhood. One of the things now, I guess this is true now as well, that the female gamete, the egg donor, can also be found 
genetically by genetic tests. So there is no, and that lack of anonymity probably creates a additional, do you think that's an additional barrier or an additional incentive for donation? So it's interesting. So in 2018, we had an anonymous egg donation program. And we transitioned that program to a known egg donor program. And we spoke to the 25-year-old girls that were donating their eggs. Greater than 90% of them preferred to know who their eggs were going to. They wanted to be known. I think there's some generational lessons to be learned that people are much more open about who they are now than maybe they were 20, 30, 50 years ago. So I think that the concern of loss of anonymity does make people not want to be gamete donors because they don't want to be discovered later. And maybe their motivation for doing this was simply the compensation. But there's many, many people out there who are willing to be known and understand they're helping people have families. And it is the egg donation is not a absolutely benign process. That is, there is both risk and if you will, medication involved, as well as a, I guess you'd call it at least a quasi-surgical procedure. Correct. That's kind of why there is more payment for, I would call, egg donors than there is for sperm donors. Absolutely. A woman donating her eggs spends around 10 to 15 days on injectable medications. That's culminated by a, a retrieval called an egg retrieval, where she gets anesthesia and has a procedure to basically enter the ovary and retrieve eggs. And it's associated with hormonal side effects, some risk to her future fertility and, you know, upwards of three to days to a week of recovery time. And now is most of this, the parenting, I mean, the worry about responsibility for parenting, is much of that done by legal means now? Meaning there is legal And do courts overrule that? So in the United States, the courts do not overrule parentage documents. The United States is different than many other parts of the world where we have maybe a little bit more firm rule of law. But even in uh, many Western countries where known sperm donation or known egg donations is also recognized and considered legal, there's a contract in place prior to the fact where the person who's the donor is giving up their parental rights, and the person who's receiving the gametes is accepting responsibility and never to kind of assert need for child support for that child to be. I'm not a lawyer, but that's not been uh, contested in the United States. And my understanding, it's uh, also considered legal in many, many countries that allow this process. There are countries that don't even allow assisted reproduction. So, you know, our world is a very dynamic place with lots of different opinions. We're talking with Mark Leandires, L-E-O-N-D-I-R-E-S. The first author is Lisa Schumann, S-C-H-U-M-A-N, Building Your Family. And you can tell by the variety of questions how broad and excellent this book is. Now, there's also one of the chapters I did read and found really interesting because as an old guy and not having to had gone through this personally or even as a advisor, it is disclosure. 
And to me, that's so different than in the anonymous donor period. I'm going to just say this is an incredibly good chapter. There is one of the fun, I don't know whether it's fun, but it, 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 to me it was fun. It is because I hadn't even thought about this. It is speaking well about your donor or of your donor. Tell me a little bit about that, because it was such a, for an old guy, it was such a unusual chapter, an unusual section. Yeah, so I think we've learned a lot over the years from people who maybe were adopted, who won't find out later in life that they were adopted, and that was devastating for them. We also know that there's donor-conceived people who never knew they were donor-conceived till they did an at-home genetic test. But regarding like the modern conception of this, no pun intended, is that if you share with your child and get very good at your story, their story, they're very comfortable that they were wanted and loved and their parents worked very hard to have them. And when they have questions about the donor, since you actively sought this donor, you want to speak fondly of that donor and kindly about that donor so they know that this person that is the other side of their genetics is also somebody who supported their own coming to life. You know, a story that I didn't share in the book because it just happened recently. I was in the car and I have a donor conceived children myself. And we were talking about how should we refer to the donor because I'm tired of calling her the donor. And my nine-year-old said, well, we should call her our fairy godmother, which I thought was beautiful coming from a nine-year-old, right? And that's really what she was to our family. She brought our family to life. That's a wonderful story. The whole book is very heartwarming. It's much different than you might expect, although it is. It, there's a lot of science in it. There's a lot of what you would call modern common sense in managing this with the expertise of two people who really know what they're doing. Lisa Schumann, S-C-H-U-M-A-N, Building Your Family, The Complete Guide to Donor Conception, and Mark Leanderes, who's a physician involved in this and who did have donor conception in his life. I don't know how you say that. Did raise a child through, or is raising a child, as you heard, with donor, who was donor conceived. Is that how you say it? Do you you say donor conceived? Yeah, I'm I'm a parent of two donor conceived children. Yeah. And our family is one board of love and intention and hard work. But it's as anybody who wants to be a parent, we worked hard to get there and we're passionate about being great parents. As I often say, we don't have enough children in the world today. The recent studies show that in Japan, it was 63% of the women of childbearing age did not want to bear children, which to me was astounding. And even more astounding, it was 55% of the 18 to 35-year-olds in a survey this week in the United States didn't want kids, which is scary. And about 50% of that was financial. So we need to do more, I think, in incentives to make it less expensive to raise children. Mark, thank you very much. The book, again, Building Your Family. You've been listening to You, the Owner's Manual radio podcast, 
And I consider this a just a remarkable book, Building Your Family. We, of course, are sponsored by both LongevityPlaybook.com and LifesFirstNaturals.com. Go to that LifesFirstNaturals.com website, and you'll see why colostrum, often the first thing that the baby gets to suckle on, is in fact good for maybe all of us and does decrease the risk of upper respiratory infections and in randomized controlled trials of those who exercise or who take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, including aspirin. And the other product, True Biotics, is also on their site.